You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. So how do we really orchestrate what it's like to be a customer, or how does a brand project a conversation with its with, with the world through multiple touch points and to do that we need to consider new technologies that aren't necessarily in the mainstream hello i'm mark pavlowski and that was tom wood co-founder of the design agency foolproof and my guest on the show today is talking there about the role that experimentation yeah, getting deep into the craft of emerging technologies can play in realizing some good design some good design that's based on real user insight and in tom's case there's quite a bit more to that story and that's something that he talks about uh, in terms of just how an agency or, or any business really you know, in-house design team shows a commitment to that principle now, for Tom and for Fulproof, this agency that he built with co-founder Peter Ballard, what that meant was putting their money where their mouth was with acquisitions, first by buying a company themselves to help fulfill this ambition to become more fluent in those kind of hybrid physical digital experiments, and then latterly by themselves deciding to join the overall fortunes of their design agency, which by then was about sort of a hundred person user-centered design agency, with those of an 8,000-strong IT services company. So overall, this was a pretty big conversation and one that I really enjoyed being able to record with Tom. Uh, we talked about these experiences that he's had on being of both sides of the acquisition process in the design industry. Uh, we talk about some of the nuances of how an agency like Foolproof shapes its culture through the relationships it has with its community, the way it approaches its client briefs and its teams, so, you know, Tom and I have known each other for a few years now, and over that time, we've had quite a few <laughs> wide-ranging chats. But I think this was probably the first time that I've got to talk to him about how he got started in advertising, you know, what it also felt like to build his agency over 14 years and to do a big acquisition and how that's all worked out for, for him and Fullproof. So have a listen. Uh, I'll be back at the end when I've got a couple of things to share with you that have caught my eye around experience design recently. But for now, here's my chat with Tom Wood, co-founder of the design agency Foolproof. Here we go. Can we start by talking about longevity? Because... I've been stalking you a little on LinkedIn in preparation for this interview, as I tend to do when I get people on the podcast. And I couldn't believe that it was 2002, am I right in yeah. saying, that Foolproof kicked off? I mean, yeah. what well, I mean, does that, do you think about that longevity on a day-to-day -day basis? What does that mean for you as an agency? Yeah, I do. Um, I've been, yeah, I've enjoyed it, but it, like I'm kind of, oh, I know that I'm unusual in my own outfit. Not, not many people, a handful of us have been you know, around since the, the earliest days. But yeah, it's much more common for people. And we, you know, it's normal in our business for people to come, stay for a while, grow and develop, move on. So yes, you start, you do start to sort of worry, uh, does 17 years doing the same thing make me really good at it? Or 
<laughs> I might pass. I might pass my sell-by date. Uh, on a different day, I'll give you a different answer. I mean, I guess if if nothing else, it is um, unusual, as you say, and perhaps that has an influence on the way client relationships work. I mean, are, are there client relationships that Foolproof has that fill that full span of the agency's existence? Because I mean, that would be pretty remarkable to have relationships that have lasted that that full lifespan. Yeah, we've got a, a couple. A couple. I mean. A, Perhaps not surprisingly, we start, our first couple of clients were financial services clients. They were quite early into thinking about user experience. Yeah, you know, way back in two thousand and two, uh, a couple of those banks are still clients. Yeah, seventeen years on, I'm, I'm pleased to say. And yeah, I mean, I, I should probably say it characterizes our client base. Uh, we've got a lot of clients who've been with us. Yeah, between five and ten years. Um, Does that change what you're able? to do with them well it i think it makes us a little less worried about always winning the battle if you know that the client or yeah the clients that you're working with are like you gently trying to win the war so in other words sometimes you're doing stuff which is help is in in the teeth of a group of business stakeholders who really don't kind of get where we and our client are coming from and how we want to develop a product or service and that's tough, and sometimes you have to concede. And you know, if you've got people who, whose design and user experience maturity is low, you know, you're not going to get, I think, everything you want to do in any given project done. But if you feel like within a client relationship, you're playing the long game, and that actually, you know, you're going to have some great days and some and some days where that, yeah, you know, that project, you know, didn't didn't get all the outcomes you wanted. That's you know, as long as we're taking small steps forward with each piece of work we do, then yeah, it's probably worth it in the in the long run. Yeah, it, it must be interesting to see how those evolve over time. Um, and I guess that that's the the difficulty with any relationships which are shorter term. And that is so much of the overall effort must be essentially front loaded into kicking off that relationship and finding the ways to work together, sort of feeling each other out a bit. Uh, that if it doesn't last for the long term, then you maybe never get the longer term benefits of really getting into that groove of, of working with each other. Yeah, and, and in some in some clients you because again clients themselves have turnover in, in you know roles right across the board. In some clients you know parts of a of the of the experience landscape better than they do. Or certainly it's history, right? And how if you like how did we get where we are today through all the steps that brought us there. So so I think we add some value as a partner in that sense as like just not not quite as uh, historians, but as people who you know, if you like have some continuity on the development of um, of products. And just going back to what you mentioned about financial services there, did did that come from your own background in that area? Was that why there was that initial focus on on those first clients being from the financial services world? Yeah, so to... So to take a step back, yeah, my last job before starting Foolproof was uh, at Virgin Money, uh, which is based uh, in Norwich. So if you like, my my last bit of career uh, development was in was in financial services, a sector that me and my business partner Pete Ballard knew well, obviously at that stage during dot com. I, su- I suppose when we started Foolproof, it made us more plausible in financial services than in any other sector. So yeah, our first few clients were mostly from the financial services arena. So that's partly yes, but I think also just financial services be- being a a non physical product and being 
and uh, they, they, I mean, they were just very quick to see the value of the web. Uh, ha, yeah, that it, it essentially was a more direct channel to you know, kind of work with and com, you know, communicate with customers. So they were, I think, they were the quickest sector in the UK into serious commitment to digital. Was that the the industry and the role in which you had your own sort of light bulb moment as to the the value of user centered design in those early stages of, of developing for the web? Yeah. It was very definitely a case of sort of um, Doctor Heal thyself. I I I was the head of advertising. So my my business partner Pete was the head was the marketing director. He was my boss. I was head of advertising at Virgin Money. Uh, that, and that, in fact, my first career, probably ten years, had been in his classic sort of pre-web Soho advertising agencies. I got to to Virgin Money. Uh, we launched, uh, we kind of rebranded Virgin, what was then Virgin Direct to become Virgin Money. We also launched a credit card at that sort of time. And I, I have to say, I, you know, if you like, the learning came from mistakes <laughs> that we made at Virgin. I think we, we the, the web properties which supported the Virgin credit card, Virgin Money when it launched, were poor. Um, and I had a direct hand in that. You know, I, I was the I was the kind of client side owner. We had an agency, and we made decisions in good faith, but we made decisions on behalf of our end user and the customer, which were reflected in design. Um, in both cases, we had pretty successful launches with those. But around that time, sort of two thousand two thousand one, I became interested in what we'd probably now call discount usability testing. You know, basically uh, evaluative usability testing i taught myself that by applying it to virgin web properties and it was very i mean that's the moment when if you conduct your own user research or if you sit in that viewing room and you you see the 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 website that we'd slaved over and put tons of effort and affection into really failing to meet basic obvious requirements of people who were trying to get themselves a new credit card or whatever they were trying to do I, I mean, I, me- I remember the very first time I did user research on the Virgin uh, credit card site. It gave me a list of about 20 things that I could, we could do, we should probably do to the site. Ten of them were really quite superficial. And there was quick fixes, copy changes or you know, just little things in UI design. We made those changes. And I remember the, the our conversion to from a sort of visit to application for the card increased 86%. So I've seared into my memory that. Yeah, that's so a powerful moment. Right. So that's a suddenly like, whoa, hold on. So really just getting input from a handful of representative users has nearly doubled my conversion rate here. It's pointed me at you know, kind of dumb things that we were doing in design. And that was pretty much the light bulb moment for Pete and I. I think we were both like, well, Virgin can't be the only company in the world for whom that is true. That that, And I think the, con- the context you've got there is the dot-com crash, 2001, 2002, when the business world was sulking about the internet, shall we say, having sort of invested billions and billions and got very little to show for it in most cases. The sort of internet was on the naughty step in corporate Britain. And I, I think we quite quickly saw that if you had – if you could bring some, yeah, some frameworks, some methodologies like you know, simple usability testing to bear on web websites or web properties that just ha- hadn't really been thought through properly, you could quite quickly get that sales chart going in the right direction. Um, and that was, yeah, it's what we what I did at Virgin and what we kind of eventually said 
yeah, that, we should start a business to do that. But Virgin can't be the only company that that could could, could see that kind of benefit if it just it took a bit more time to bring the user's view into the into the world. Did it feel like a brave decision at the time to launch well, the it, business? That is. Oh, to launch a business. Um, yeah, I mean there was a rece- I mean there was a recession. Certainly, <laughs> like it was, put it this way, the the technology industry and the internet industry was in recession at that time. I mean, these stock, those kind of classic valuations of dot com era had busted spectacularly. And it, yeah, as I say, it, it felt like a period where it was quite risky to be starting anything new that was to do with the internet. But then that was really our insight. It's like, yeah, because actually there's there's a missing ingredient here, you know, the customer, the end user that hasn't that, that's a big idea. I mean, that's an old and big idea, you know, to include to to include in what you're doing, thinking about the person the people for whom you're designing is not that's not a new idea that we invented in two thousand and two, but we really saw that it that was an idea of its time. If you like flash forward to, to where we are today. Yeah. And you know, you think about the people now that you're working with as clients, who I guess you know essentially are in similar roles to the ones that you yourself would have been coming from when you were working um, with Virgin. Do you see those same mistakes being made that you were encountering and learning about when you were in, in Virgin, or do you think the the overall level of knowledge about the, the value and the application of user centered design has come on since then? Yeah, I think I think we have come a long way. When we fir- when we first started writing down strategy for ourselves 10, 15 years ago. I, we cast ourselves at that time very much as we, yeah we're part of a movement which is about trying to bring user centered design methodologies into big into big businesses because big businesses I think it was a crisis in the mid middle mid two thousands brands and their customers were drifting apart they were as removed from each other as they had been for a generation I think I, I think you know things like offshoring call centers so de- like degrade as closing high street banks if you, that's what the there was something about degrading uh, the human experience of being a customer that we felt that the industry and big brands were getting wrong, that they were distancing their customers. And we felt that human centered design approaches, techniques, tools was a way of bringing those two parties closer together, creating more value and meaning for brands in the minds of their, of their customers. So that we were very much kind of, um, we started as a sort of, yeah, we're part of a revolution. This is, yeah, this is like, there should be more of this in the world. We're we're one group of co- yeah we're one little company that's doing that. There are others. It's a movement. We, we've got to bring human centered design into the world. I, I think it's funny when we were re- revisiting our company strategy a couple of years ago. Oh, in fact, yeah, turn of this year. I don't think that that I think that revolution was successful. Broadly speaking, I, I don't think yeah to, to to get back to your question. I don't think the average product manager in a you know in a kind of e-commerce business or a or a bank or a you know whatever i think they understand some basics about if i'm brutally honest removing risk out of the design process the design and uh, product development process and you re- the best way to remove that risk is to bring the target in, or intended customer into the design process and i think that's i, I think it's the same in the biggest companies in the world i think that's the normal way of doing things now is it practiced Totally, or with complete sophistication by all major companies in the world. No, not at all. Different companies have different levels of 
sort of maturity around design. But broadly speaking, I, th- I think uh, yeah, we've come a long way in ten years. There are things there are things that you just wouldn't do uh, if you're trying to develop a, a product or service and bring it to market that you think you wouldn't do today that, that were very commonplace ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah, I guess there's that element of a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, once you see your competitors um, at least going through that process of de-risking and that becoming the sort of table stakes that things shouldn't come to market with at least without at least some exposure to a, a process that at least builds itself as user-centered design, uh, it, it's hard to to come back from that. I think um, you know, it, that expectation gets gets established. But I mean, I guess as you and I both know, it's not necessarily always enough to have the intention to move towards a more user-centered design process. There's still a lot of variation in how that's actually yeah. implemented. Um, I mean, you now work not just obviously in financial services, but across a whole bunch of, of different sectors. Are you starting to identify patterns as to you know how that happens more successfully, how that starts to become really ingrained in a company culture when you're working with them as an agency versus those where you're fighting that sort of uphill battle all the time to, to justify um, the existence of the process and, and the value of the process? Are, are there um, patterns emerging which give you a good feeling now when you start working with clients? Yes, I think there are things that we tend to look for. I mean, yeah, if someone's if a new client is calling us it's probably because they're they're seeing an opportunity to move the business perhaps they've been hired in order to move the design user experience maturity of their organization on a step they see an opportunity to do that but potentially they don't have the all the resources in-house to do that all the experience they need or all the stakeholder buy-in so often that if you like we're we're normally called in through a door that's already partly open which is great and then, yeah, what, what what patterns do I see? I think it'll be evidence of success. So the best the best clients are the ones that are very good at merchandising and storytelling. You know, cre- crucial design skill storytelling about things that were successful and why they were successful. So what what was the hard work and the thought and the insight that went into creating that success and merchandise those stories for effect, not just in the area where that success happened but right across the organization so you, you you're creating and we're, we're often yeah yeah very willing allies for our clients in helping them do that to, to, to merchandise success and tell the story of it that gets you the opportunity to start to create commonality and practice so what yeah hold on we ought to what, <laughs> so the, the ceo says or the the, the the senior stakeholder says whatever brought us success for this product over here is replicable I understand. And so I now think should be applied in multiple cases. I think that should become the normal way of us doing design or product development. And then surely behind that, if it all goes to plan is investment. So the ability to yeah, invest in the people, the time, the tools in order to make that the kind of common way of working right across the organization. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it stall as well, which is frustrating. But I have seen it happen. Yeah, that that storytelling role, I think, is a pretty interesting one. That That's something which is coming up more and more in conversations that I'm having with people on this podcast, both those who are working in client-side roles and those who are working agency-side. And it, it always kind of interests me the nuance between the different – what that means – uh, depending on whether you are on the agency side or whether you are on the client side, because often, you know, this is 
is essentially a joint endeavour towards the same goal. Uh, and yet, yeah, I think there is a slight nuance as to what roles you each play in telling that story, because presumably for you as an agency, there's an element of that story which is about what it's going to mean for you internally as a business and what it might mean for, say, winning new business and what it might mean for um, telling the story to people within your own organisation, helping them to develop their skills. And then there's also that element of, of justifying the internal project for for the client and, and what it means to them. I mean, do how do you how do you square that that circle? How do you make sure that's something which ends up being of mutual benefit to to both parties, and that that story becomes something sort of greater than the sum of its parts? There are some interesting case studies on our agency's website, but almost all of them started life. I mean, all of them started life as stories that were being told and socialised inside our client organisations. In other words, they're, they're simply a kind of public version of a of a private previously private story. So, it, which is to point out that. We have a very vested interest in doing great work for our clients, bringing them business success through that great work. But then, yeah, merchandising that into stories told about how did we do it and why did it have effect? First and foremost, not to particularly to sell foolproof to the next client, but it's actually to try and create traction inside our, our client's own organization. Um, if that answers the question, sorry. No, it, it doesn't. It's, it's something I've always. I guess admired about foolproof is the the straightforwardness with which you tell those stories and how you seem to have a genuine interest in an organization in sharing some of the lessons that you're learning along the way. And I mean, maybe that comes back to that thing about longevity as well, because of all the different people that I've spoken to who are in roles such as, as yours, um, particularly agency side, that seems to be a common pattern is yes. when an organization is good at that storytelling aspect and sees the importance of sharing it back to the community, but also to the organization as a whole. It kind of, I don't know, it suggests maybe a, a commitment to, to long-term learning as a, a community, as a, a, an industry practice, um, but also among the people that are working within your organization and making sure those those skills stay sharp. Which I, I don't know. I mean, you're a better place to 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 give an appraisal of it than than I am. But it always strikes me that fundamentally, agency work comes back to a question of of talent and skills, and whether or not you have those working together in a, a useful way. And that education has got to play a, a pretty big role in that. Yeah, um, yeah. We we wouldn't be half half the company we are today if it were not for the generosity of other people on the client side and agency side. You know, in the design community, sharing the things they'd learned, sharing the ideas they've had, the models that they were developing, the frameworks, you know, the kind of wins and losses. And I think we've we've always felt that we're part of that community, and that that's that's the price of admission. You you need you you have to you have to share what you learn. What do you find on the ground at the moment with regards to to talent? Because I, I keep hearing slightly different takes on this from mm. different people in the industry. I mean, is it are you finding you're able to fill your organisation with the kind of talent that you know it needs to to grow in the future, or is that is there a shortage? We don't. Yes, we don't struggle to fill roles. There is, there is, there is plenty of talent in in the marketplace, both in the UK, where we, you know we kind of centre of operations, and Singapore. We also have a studio there. Is, is there is there enough to support the whole market? No, I don't, I don't think there is. So if you like, do do, do we suffer? Not particularly, because I think. Well, you know, I, I, I would say this, but I think we we create 
a, a you know a, a kind of place to work and an atmosphere around the work that attracts people so so and I, and I see the pace with which talent is being kind of brought into the market through schools and university is picking up so I do I don't think in the super long term we have a problem but I think in the medium term yeah there, there simply aren't enough people I mean I, I was on LinkedIn there were there are 41,000 vacancies in the UK I think when I looked <laughs> with user experience in the title I was like wow that's a lot. That's a lot of positions that people are trying to fill, which is brilliant, isn't it? I mean, isn't that great that 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 many roles you know are in flux for people uh, yeah, to solve problems? Yeah, it's certainly a sign of the times. The extent yeah. to which that that's grown. Yeah, I have to say, I was yeah, I was really pleased about that. Uh, it, it does it make it yeah the, the talent wars are real, and it makes it harder and harder for uh, if you like a relatively smaller boutique kind of agency as we still are. Yeah, to fight uh, you know, against bigger organisations, but yeah, as I say, it, 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 I'm quite I'm quite happy with ha- if you like our own role in that uh, positioning in that. But in the in the medium term, I I, th- I think there is a there is a there's a gap in the talent. What what, are, what what yeah? So what what what's your view on this, Barry? What like where how do people characterise the pro- if you like if there's a talent shortage in design and user experience right now where's where is it it's it's difficult to say i mean if i go on the basis of the conversations that i've had on this show over the last little while then i think you're absolutely right that the the level of of interest and aspiration among people to get into user experience design to use probably the sort of most common umbrella term for it has never been higher and is growing and that's great where I think I have question marks is the degree to which the courses that people are doing currently at university level are actually equipping people with the skills which allow them to do that in a a truly user-centered way and whether or not the roles they're going into will actually give them the the space and the mandate to apply truly user-centered methods to doing that design work or whether it's merely being dressed up in that way because it's a a good buzz term to sell the work to clients currently or to sell the projects internally to say, yes, this is a user experience-led project. But then the dirty secret is that actually no users were ever harmed, talked to, (laughs) whatever, in in the making of this project. So that that to me seems like the, the risk factor. But I guess it's yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty broad problem without there being one particular solution to it. I mean, do, do you find with foolproof at least that you have any sort of secret weapons, if you like, in being able to attract the kind of talent that you want in the organisation to you? Because you're, you know, foolproof now, I guess, is quite a different company to how it was um, even sort of five years ago or so, because you have different relationships. You're part of a larger organization now. You have um, that global footprint as well as still having the Norwich and the London bases. Do you find that sort of any one of those particularly is becoming more attractive to the kind of people that you're trying to bring into the organization or does it depend on the, the individual candidate? I think uh, it, it, it loops back to learning. I think we have a good reputation as being somewhere where you can learn in an accelerated way both the sort of work you'll get here but the sort of people that will be on the left and right of you as you're doing it and yeah long may that continue because as I say I think I think you can get more out of three or four years at 
foolproof. I think you, you can accelerate your learning in a way that you couldn't in some other environments, plenty, plenty of others, but not, not all other environments. I think that's a cr- critical advantage that we have to keep working on. So we have this promise we have to keep, you know, <laughs> really to, to allow people to, to vocalize the value of what they've learned over the course of a year or any or a course of a project and be yeah, quite, quite focused on people's on the learning agenda for individuals right across the organization if you if you're if you're learning generally speaking if you're learning you're engaged and happy and interested and that's good for us so i i, I will always encourage people to I'll, I'll, when we think about resourcing we'll, we'll we'll take quite a lot of time about constructing teams that aren't just going to do great work in response to the brief that we're getting from the client but where there's an opportunity for people who for X to work with Y, for some, we know that this person, this project will be good for someone because it will give them a little, this this one has got some really good raw learning about information architecture in it. And that, that's an area where this person has said that they want to kind of get pushed a bit more. So we, 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 we head scratch quite a lot over project resourcing in order to create the best sort of learning outcomes for people as well as to create happy, productive teams. And are you finding that that's leading to a greater diversity in types of skills and people you want to bring into the organisation now? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty broad. I mean, to, to be, yeah, to be a, you know, a great heavyweight designer is to ha- is probably to have a, a, a skill, a number of skills across a really wide spectrum. And talking about t-shirt people is pr- is a pretty tired way of doing it, but it's it's fair. I think we're we're always looking for people who have a, who who show a, a evidence of skill and passion for a p- particular domain, be it research or user interface design, but that have a hunger to learn about. The other disciplines within design to put them into their skill set, or at least understand how to work really effectively with specialists in those different domains. That that I think is again sort of table stakes for us as a p- people who, ah, I mean, again, in the nicest possible way, don't think they're the finished article when they walk into foolproof for the first time. They're looking at it as an opportunity to say, I, I, I could I could grow in some way as uh, if this go, if this whole thing joint being with foolproof works out well i i will i will grow in my experience but also in my kind of practice capabilities yeah i mean i suppose as, as someone um ultimately hiring that talent presumably that means you've had to hone your own skills in being able to understand when someone genuinely does have that aspiration to to, to grow and to add those additional you know to, to become that t-shape as it were yes i'd have i'm often rudely reminded by colleagues <laughs> not to get to eyes different skill sets because sometimes that does happen in resourcing yeah you 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 are you simpkins have a particular skill set which is required on this job but People are the practice generally is quite quick to vocalise if it feels that the opportunity for learning or cross disciplinary kind of working is being restricted. And quite right, so it's one of the ways in which I expect to be held to account. Really, so yes, does that mean I have to stay across that? Yeah, absolutely, because I I'd rather not have the pitchforks out inside the agency. I'd rather (laughs) rather get it right uh, first time with the way in which we're organising ourselves and deploying people onto work. So has the the way in which you can sort of nurture talent and learn from things going across the organisation, has that been influenced by the relationship with with Zenzark? So a few years back now, you had this transaction with Zenzark, Mm. you became part of this this larger organisation. Has that had an influence on, on that element of it? Yeah, so yeah, just to recap, we, we 
we became uh, so a wholly owned part of uh, Zensile Technologies, which is a, a kind of global technology company. About it's about three years ago now. There were two reasons for that. I mean, if you like, let me let me step back in order to answer the question. The first was. I think we were just getting more, much more interested in technology, or, or, or rather, I think we were we were realizing how that we had shortcomings in our ability to uh, imagine and to sort of specify and bring bring to life really good digital products and services because we simply weren't, as an organization at that time, this is probably five years ago, sophisticated enough in our understanding of technology. Uh, our creative director, James Reeve. I remember it was about five years ago. You know, he said we can't draw pictures of design. It's no good. We can't. We can't draw up a specification to give to a tech to a technologist and expect them to execute brilliantly against it. But if they're not part of our process, if they haven't, if they're not effectively bound in on what we're trying to do for the customer or even what we're trying to do for the business, the client here. So I think we'd had that nagging feeling that we have to become more. We have to be able to consult in technology, which we weren't really doing five years ago. Partly because, the, if you like, on the one hand, defensively, you could say if you don't if you don't know reasonably well the technologies with out of which you, you know, your kind of user experience is going to be made, then it's, there's a danger you're going to be suggesting things. Yeah, you know, we make things that can't be made. That 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 would be bad. I, I tend to think it the the other way around, though. It's equally a threat that if you're not if you're not reasonably sophisticated in terms of your technology understanding you're you're going to miss creative opportunities you're not going to you're, you're not going to understand where something could be made and that you and that that will make you potentially make your design practice quite conservative always living within uh, the realms of what is what you know you like in, in, in common understanding is technologically possible and i think we wanted to be able to in certain areas just push things to to make things through technology that hadn't necessarily been made before to at least have that opportunity so that was a back that was kind of a background for us it's like we ha- we and we'd ha- and i think there was a there was a seminal moment where we'd had that moment of of the fence one a big piece of work we did for a major client was a business to business platform we'd created a I, I think a really it was a really good product expression of what it was that needed to happen between the, the, the client and their customers. And we had a specification that, yeah, a kind of pattern library, and it was all kind of ready for people to make. It got thrown over a fence to a big technology company who made it, and it was made badly. <laughs> and uh, and then we didn't really have any control over that. As I say, we, we, we kind of left our artifacts, artifacts by the side of the road and someone had picked them up. And it was just it was just deeply frustrating. I think that's that was that was a moment where like we can't we can't go on like this, really. So that was kind of driver number one. I'm just curious as to how that path actually unfolded, because uh, I, I totally get the motivation for it and being able to complete the circle and offer that additional sort of depth and, and integration on the, the technology side of it. But I mean, how does a big IT services company. If people who don't know, Zenzar is, is one of the world's you know, real big IT services organizations, um, but based originally out of India. Yeah. Um, how does their path lead to your door in Norwich or vice versa? Yeah, I think if you like, well, as we were f- sort of getting ourselves to the pe- part of the page that said, we we really need to be part of a technology group or have, a, have deeper links with technologists, their strategy, I think, they were looking at 
the market. I think they were, they were, it's partly what we, what we now call digital transformation, but it's the quality of what is happening between the brand and its customers is that moment that, that, that's really important. Unless you can bring quality into that interaction, everything else you can deliver as a technology company is stuff. It's stuff you might get hired to do. You might get someone else might get hired to do because they can do it cheaper. But to be able to create very high quality outcomes in customer experience, that was it was essentially that was on their strategy page. Is like we, we don't really have anything to differentiate ourselves when it comes to the if you like, the front end of user experience or employee experience. And so their strategy described needing to grow design as a capability and i would say sort of high quality engineering as well generally to move the whole thing uh, if you like uh, up the chart in terms of value creation for the end for the end customer to the move out of the selling it services cheap because they're going to be offshored but towards creating very high quality out technology outcomes for clients with their customers absolutely i mean neither of you were alone in that i mean it's still going on at the moment but i think particularly when your transaction was announced three or so years ago was a real peak of that activity when all kinds of different big it services organizations uh, in one guise or another were beating the paths to the doors of companies like like foolproof um just you know always curious as to how the the particular matches end up getting made in the end because there was a lot of it going on there still is to a degree of those that kind of matchmaking happening and and why it ends up being sort of one organization versus another not least because at that point i guess you were 14 years into building foolproof with your business partner and i can only imagine you know that must feel like a pretty big moment when you think right we're now going to become part of of something larger join up with uh, with another organization that that must um give a lot of pause for thought i would guess yes <laughs> yeah that there is that was it was a stressful moment if you like as we were deciding that's what we need to do because i think the other factor and if you, again if we think back five years and it's continued the very very big technology houses uh accenture you know sapient are have hoovered up they were hoovering up the sort of work that independent agencies as foolproof was were doing for good or ill it was a it was a reality and um so i think there was there was a we, we didn't like the climate in in, in you know that, at that time there'll always be a place for boutique a independent boutique agencies of all stripes including design but that was a tough climate for to, to operate in so i think that was that was partly in the background but then yeah it's, it was really about well who okay so if we if we made a move like that who would it be with and that that really i i didn't on the day we shook hands on the deal with Zentar, i wasn't really worried because i knew that yes you're right they are a big company you know billion dollars in revenue but actually oh actually on the global scale for technology companies that's not big i mean that's not that's not huge big and it and it was we could see that their strategy was about moving towards high a value creation for clients in, in around digital technologies and we felt that they were small enough at eight thousand people where you add a hundred odd, odd foolproof into the mix that, that actually there there's the opportunity for collaboration rather than kind of yeah if you like us just going to have to accept that the that the acquiring company was as it was and would never change and yeah you know, we, we we knew we were joining a business in change and we were part of that plan which is exciting so i, I we i was quite chirpy 
I think, as we, and st- still am really, about the deal because it allowed us um, a slightly bigger stage to step onto, but also to be able to learn and develop ourselves in ways that we hadn't yet put push ourselves in ways we hadn't before so i was i was quite i was quite cheerful once we found zensor and knew what they were doing uh I, I was quite cheerful has it changed your own role within the organization uh, as to i guess having almost that sort of dual responsibility to both work with the larger parent organization as well as working you know, with the existing internal team and working with with clients do you find you have a new role now as an an advocate for foolproof within the larger business yes that, that that's true but I, i'd say probably that's the only re- meaningful dimension in which my role has changed i mean i think most people here would, who've been here for the last three years would say yeah that i pretty much do today what i did a few years ago but yes you're right i think it's yeah if, if, if we want to go to market with this with a design and technology proposition so design it and build it proposition if you like then there's an awful lot of learning that the two organizations, the foolproof organization, the Zensar organization are going to have to get involved with. So, yeah, if you like, sponsoring, accelerating that and just helping people understand, like, not just like, what do we, how do we work? Yeah, the kind of principles of the frameworks, the methods that we use, but the mindsets that we have that, you know, again, most agencies would, would say this. It's like when the client presents to you with, hello, I would like to, I'm, I'm trying to do this and I would like to buy these people or services from you to do it. The first questions you've got to ask are why? Why are you trying to do that? <laughs> why, why do you think this solution that you, you, you're, you, you're kind of fixed on is the right one? So to ask respectfully, to ask critical questions of the approach, the strategy that, if you like, informs the need, the need for you. I, don't, I think traditionally in the technology world, that's normal. To, to sort of put immediately <laughs> that you're asked to go into a new business process with a client to start asking them questions about what, why are you even doing this? But design folk do that all the time. So I think that 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 makes us look a little odd in front of the client to our new colleagues a couple of years ago, helping them understand, well, why why do you behave like that, Foolproof? And you know, what, what, essentially, why, why aren't we just saying yes and getting on with things right from the gate? That takes a bit of time. Did you find that it helped you having been on the other side of that table uh, in terms of acquisitions because I know foolproof prior to uh, the transaction with Zenzar you had also bought some small businesses yourself yes. uh, did, did you find that that helped you to understand a bit more about how both parties can get the most out of those kind of transactions yeah I think so yeah I mean obviously what we did was on a much smaller scale but yeah I, whenever we bought a company in the past as foolproof and independent in the past it was really to accelerate a strategic intent that we had and also in some ways to commit to it is like you know so for example when we when we acquired uh flow who were a, a, a kind of designed studio like us back in 2010 it was because we knew we wanted to get we wanted to to get further into establishing sort of what we might call design studio business within foolproof we didn't want we didn't necessarily want to hang around because we thought that opportunity was right now in the marketplace i think that was right and <laughs> if you buy a company you're really making a commitment <laughs> you're really saying this is the bet and it's like we think that the capabilities skills the people inside this this the, the business we're buying are vital to help us get from where we are today to where we want to be to tomorrow so i i yes i've, I've certainly had had experience in the past of using acquisitions in order to cement 
intent around strategy, and I think that's exactly what Zentile were doing when they when they acquired us. It was, like, it was like loading the commitment, showing the rest of the organ, the whole of their organisation, we are going in this direction. We're, we're investing in it. Uh, it will change us, but uh, but it, it will keep us on a strategy which will continue to make us relevant for you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years beyond now. So I mean, one of the things that, that you and I share is a base in Norfolk. And I guess that was how yeah. we came to meet was the fact that I'd relocated to Norfolk and found Foolproof based in, in Norwich and we got talking. Was there a moment where the Zenzar team came over to see Norwich for the first time? Yes, how did that go? What it did they think of, of Norwich at first sight? It, it, well, everyone who comes to Norwich loves it, Mark, as you well know. It's a it's a fantastic little city. Um, Absolutely, I'm a, a firm advocate for the the beauties of, of Norwich. But it's <laughs> you know, it's not when you're listing off your office locations as a design agency. <laughs> I mean, London, Singapore for foolproof. You know, New York perhaps. Norwich doesn't normally. F- naturally sort of slip off the tongue as the next one along no that's perhaps fair although you know there are plenty of great agencies in regional cities and you know bristol and brighton and manchester and edinburgh so it's like it's not without precedent yeah and we just to explain yeah to explain so we we've got three we've got three sort of centers of operation london is probably two-thirds of the people who work at Foolproof work in London uh, and then the rest is split between Singapore and Norwich. We started the agency in Norwich because that's where Pete and I happened to be at when we were working at Virgin Money. Where we, When we fell out of that, we were in Norwich, so heck, we'll start it here. Uh, to answer your question, it was really funny. I, in fact, it wasn't so much the reaction of, I heard a, uh, of w- what, as NSAR colleagues made of Norwich, I heard a story about a discussion on their, at their board and I think someone had made a point like, the uh, foolproof is a you know London design agency, and they were and someone stopped them. It's like no 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 no, you have, they're a Norwich design agency, and that's quite uh, that's subtly different. <laughs> I, I think they meant <laughs> that there is something slightly more wholesome. I think in the context they were saying that uh, uh, we can trust these guys on this issue. They're they're, uh, they're a Norwich agency. That's a different place. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just love that idea of that sort of that cultural understanding growing between mm. two quite unlikely points on the globe um, uh, by virtue of a, a transaction like this. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. And yeah. I mean, a, a, as you said, you know, Norwich is a, a fascinating and, and wonderful city and one where I'm still, you know, despite having been here for a few years now, constantly amazed by uh, both the depth and the breadth of things going on, which pertain to design in some way and make it actually a very rich place to um, be running an organization like Foolproof, I'd imagine. Not least because of a lot of the stuff that goes on in the wider community, which I know you guys are very actively involved in as well with all of the sort of extracurricular activities that, that happen around Norwich. Yes. And I, th- I think you're right. In the, in the same way that generally speaking, Foolproof should be a learning and sharing organization Globally, you know, it, like we publish and people speak all over the world. Specifically, you, I think you've got to be a friend to the towns that you're in. You know, in London, Singapore, you know, people there are very active in inside the design communities in those towns. And it's the same in Norwich. I'm pleased to say, and uh, yeah, I think it, it, perhaps the value of that is even more is even more in Norwich because it's a, a town where economically it's growing quite fast. I think the nature of the economy is changing to be more, yeah, so to be more around technology, digital technologies in particular. So, yeah, the time that we put into, you know, running meetup groups or getting involved with 
hacks or whatever we're doing here in Norwich, I, I really feel is creating a bit of extra bang for the buck. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we've got the one of the big focal points of the, the Norwich calendar, at least in technology and design coming up, which I know you've been involved with for a long time, is Sync the City, uh, which yes. is next next month, as I understand. That's right. Yeah, it's less than a so, month away now. Yeah, I mean, it's, for, it's for someone who's fun. never been, how would you explain the, the wonders of Sync the City? The city is. It, it did start off. Perhaps it started off a bit more as a sort of technology hack. You know, kind of make something in code and prove out something you've been noodling on. It's it, it quite quickly became much more of a startup competition. So if you had an idea for a business that you'd been thinking about, you know, over your morning coffee, and wanted to see if it had legs, Sync the City is a two. Two and a half day startup hack, really. You you you, you pitch ideas. Yeah, there are probably forty ideas pitched at the start of the weekend. Twelve teams, twelve ideas, cre- creating twelve teams of about ten people, cross disciplinary. So yeah, kind of design, dev, business skills, students. Lots of students get involved here. Um, and then you've got yeah, fifty four hours to get to a um, a start five minute startup pitch at the end of that. It's fan- it's fantastic. It's generated a few businesses so you know there are more than a couple you know, more than a handful of businesses e- either the idea that went through sync the city to has turned into a business or, or teams of people that got together to think about a business at sync the city one year find themselves two years later starting up in a completely different space so i think it's been really useful for the city in focusing on sort of business generation um, but also what it does is, yeah, oldsters like me, I, I run on one of the teams of mentors, so each team is mentored. So if you like, pe- really interesting people with really useful experience, so the CTO of Aviva, one of their main offices here in Norwich, people who've yeah, created tech startups themselves, they, they all give up their time to act as mentors or organizers for the event. So if you're working on one of these teams, you might be a second-year student at the Norwich University of the Arts, but you'd be working with people who really have done stuff in this space before and have got some really interesting perspectives that you can fold co- co- you know, into your early stage thinking on a on a startup. Uh, it's a huge amount of fun. It's cr- absolutely – I need to lie down for about a week afterwards nowadays, but it's <laughs> tremendous fun. And, yeah, so if anybody ever, ever – you know, I, I can't recommend this event highly enough. There are tickets still available, just a few. So uh, get on it. Come, come, come to Norwich. Spend a weekend crazy fun yeah i'll put a link in the show notes so that people can check out the details of it but yeah having participated in my first of them last year i can you know fully attest to to everything you said and particularly that i guess the the energy that people manage to sustain through you know 54 hours non-stop with usually just a few sort of short hours to catch up on sleep along the way and that the breadth of the sort of talent that goes into each of those different individual startups that goes through the sort of acceleration process over the two and a half days i was genuinely surprised by how much each team managed to achieve and how fully formed some of the ideas looked even just after those two days when they were actually presented, including the application of some pretty interesting user research methods, obviously some quite guerrilla, rapid user research methods. But the fact that almost every team really thought to try and include some element of that within the process and that there were the skills around among the mentors and among the the people that 
had uh, bought tickets to participate in the event to make that happen. You know, I think it speaks pretty well to the, the depth of talent in Norwich as a place. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> see what they do. Let's see what they come up with this year. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to have the same conversation again the day afterwards and see whether you're oh, still so, so enthusiastic. <laughs> Um, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, just going back to something you mentioned about the um, one of the businesses that you bought previously. As I recall, um, you bought a business a few years ago, uh, which was um, doing a lot around experimentation with hardware and that sort yeah. of intersection area between physical and, and digital. And you know, I'm curious whether that's still something that you you feel is uh, you know a big part of the the future that you'd like to see for Foolproof that that crossover area between uh, hybrid physical digital experiences yes so that that acquisition was a company called knit who were a creative small creative technology studio uh, and again it, it again makes just reiterate this point about us committing to our own strategy you know i'd already described you like we felt that we need to take a deeper journey into technology in order to learn in the way we need to learn and grow in the way we need to grow as a business so it it, it came from that yes i mean the, the short answer is yes that's something i want to see more in the future because i think the orchestration of user experience across m- multiple touch points and some some of those being physical and some of those interactions being human if, for me that's the interesting that that's the interesting direction that all of this is going so how, how do we really orchestrate what it's like to be a customer or or how does a brand project a conversation with its with, with the world through multiple touch points and to do that we need to consider new technologies that aren't necessarily in the mainstream i mean i, you know, I think i think converse, yeah so conversational user interface is de- definitely one which I, yeah, I, I still remain quite excited about, even though it, it's perhaps an, it, it's in its slump in the sort of Gartner hype cycle right now. I, I, I'm quite excited about conversational UI. And yeah, I think we, we wanted to be pulled a little bit out of our comfort zone thinking about the web and web technologies, um, which, which acquiring Nick certainly did. Um, the, what I want to think one of the dangers though is there's a lot of in sort of the creative edge of technology there's a lot of experimentation stuff. There's a lot of brands who are playing potentially because it reflects well on themselves. They've got an innovation center, which is you know, creating a sort of interesting point solution, which involves some new technologies, you know, AR, VR, you name them. I don't, most organizations don't, when they pick up these technologies, don't really have an idea about committing to, to the long term. So I got, I think we got a bit frustrated about being in the game of making Point solutions, yeah, sort of sing, single instance solutions, things that would be kind of thrown up, used for a while, and then t- as an experiment, then taken down. So that bugs me a bit. And again, perhaps gives you a clue about why we were more interested in actually being part of a technology company ra- rather than just developing our own technology practice. Actually, we probably need to throw ourselves into a bigger swimming pool here and and look look at technologies which have. Which have the potential to to create impact right across the, organ, the client organization or right across the the user experience. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always hard to know when that moment is going to occur around mm-hmm. a particular piece of emerging technology and when you can pick up and run with it and really accelerate something. Because by their very nature, yeah, these things um, often come right out of of left field and, and kind of blindside people slightly. I mean, are, are there any bits of technology which, for you personally, 
the moment are sort of starting to excite you that you think might fill in some of those missing pieces that are still keeping that area of physical digital intersection kind of in the labs and the experimentation phase? Are there any sort of clues that are emerging for you where you think, yeah, this this might be the one which um, which fills the gap and, and starts a new thing? I mean, there is a lot of gas expended about AI and machine learning, but I do. I I tend. I think we will we'll start. We will end up calling this automation. That this whole category is called automation, and it will. It, some of it will use absolutely bleeding edge machine learning, and some of it will just be about you know reusing ex- useful existing technologies that have not properly been harnessed. But yeah, I think the automation. We have to look at the automation of user experience seriously. I think the pro- the promise of personalization has been around forever, hasn't it? I mean, it's like you could say it's like in Adobe Experience Manager or whatever. It's it's baked in. It's like we can we can do personalization now. So why aren't we doing it? Why are you and I, Marek, not receiving a truly personalized experience from you know, at least a handful of brands that we use regularly and have and they they have the data which should suggest an intimate understanding of our relationship with them? Because it's hard, right? It's like it's hard, and it requires at the moment we're trying to do personalization at the speed of human thought. Uh, you know, like if you like to design aspects of a service which are going to be truly personalized often is requiring humans to make decisions about rules about communications or notifications etc i i think that the machines will help us bring personalization more to life i i think i think that the aspect of that where we can benefit from machines carrying the burden of analysis and synthesis as long as we're giving them good rules about what to do (laughs) what we want to do in the user experience in response to that so i am i'm really quite excited about automation yeah less 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 afraid than i am excited but um but having said that (laughs) there is ample opportunity for industry to mess up uh, the applications of ai and machine learning into business and to dehumanize again almost take us back a, a step you know to, de- to dehumanize what, it, what what the relationship between a brand and a customer is all about but if it's used right i think it will have the it could have the opposite effect in time it will well i suppose a positive to take from that particularly you know when you're running an agency business is that that seems to be a pretty fundamental role of an agency organization is to provide that that guidance that sort of leading the way down the path for client side organizations into this new area and showing where the best practices are not least um, in the sense that i think you're right about that sense of um things being held back by a sort of fundamental lack of human trust in the ability for that personalization to happen in a wholly positive way and being able to show client organizations how even if things don't work out as planned with the automated personalized version that is presented to the customer that there are a set of of steps of experiences that you can place around that which allow that situation to be easily rectified and easily managed which kind of provides the fail-safe valve if you like over being willing to implement that large-scale personalization as as an organization and to me it it seems that's that's exactly where the sweet spot will be for a lot of agencies is in providing that sort of education and guidance to organizations to to make that happen yeah yes i think that's right if we can intervene into those conversations early enough that's that's the danger. I mean, it was the same with when 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 it finally was the year of mobile in two thousand nine ten. I think that there was there was a problem because I think 
the people who understand how to craft valuable human experiences were slightly slightly kept away from the party by technologists <laughs> it's like you, if you're like and, and now I, I think that's happening there's the danger of that happening with ai that there's conversation happening between machine learning people and organizations which will have which will find manifestations of ai into business but the yeah design folk aren't close enough to 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 create the the fail safes that you're describing there it will happen in time but it may not happen in the first flush yeah um, fingers crossed as, as soon yeah. as possible because i think you're right designers have a lot to add to that conversation and, and just yeah having a diverse range of voices as a whole in that conversation i think is going to be very important from an ethical standpoint from a good usability standpoint from making sure the technology is scalable you know all of those speak to rather different skill sets but are all just as important parts of the the discussion. Yes, um, sorry, go on. I was just going to say. I mean, it strikes me that you know we, we've covered quite a lot of ground in this conversation, which is probably testament to the fact that over the time that you have been running foolproof and what you're doing for Virgin, you know, you yourself have covered a, a huge amount of, of ground in the different things that you have achieved with it, but. I'm also curious as to whether or not there's anything which is left undone at this stage. You know, is there, when you think about the future, is there something that you're particularly keen to try in your career that you haven't yet had the opportunity to do? Ah, in this career? No. I'm very, you know, I, I, I still love my work. Do I think I might have a different, uh, another career before I'm done? I, as I say, I've had two already. Yes, possibly. And I think I've spent so much time on the advisory side of the table. I think it would be rude of me at some point before I pull stumps to not actually try and, you know, sell some, <laughs> sell a product to the world or rather advise my dear clients on how to do it. So I, I suspect that that might be the challenge. I, I think some, some, you know, direct to consumer business. That that's something that 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 would excite me, and as I say, it's given me the opportunity to put, pull together, see whether I've learned anything in twenty five years. But yeah, that's there's plenty of time for that, I think. And uh, yeah, right now, no, I'm really enjoying it. In in some ways, the most important thing now for me is we talked right at the start of our conversation about the kind of there was a human centered design revolution. It sort of ha it did happen. It, it, like except the general acceptance of many of the techniques, tools, methods, mindsets of user-centered design are, are really important in most, you know, in, in the way that business and, and large organizations conduct themselves. That's great. I think there are counter-revolutionary forces. <laughs> I think there are, and again, you alluded to it earlier on. I think there are, there are, sometimes it's easier to say, yeah, we've got, yeah, to, to, to name artifacts, we've got personas and we're going to do a customer journey map and we're going to do all the things that make it look like we've brought the customer into this design process without, you know, actually having the time and expense of really doing that. That continuing to, yeah, fend off a counter revolution, if, that, if that's not too much of a stretch, to protect and to kind of continue to advance user-centered design, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, like, I don't want to sound too grand, but that is my, that's the most important thing I've done with my life. It's due to be, to be part of a group of people worldwide who were trying to agitate for ways of developing better products and services for, you know, real humans like my mum. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm tremendously pleased to have found something that I could really put my back into, something I believed in, 
and could put my back into and in one way shape or form you know until I do really stop working I, I will be involved with just trying to gently keep the pressure on uh, the momentum that we've created in the first 20 years of this and does guarding against that counter-revolution require uh, like a significant change to to foolproof strategy when you look at the next sort of two to three years or is that an amplification of, of the same messages that you're yeah I, I think it's the latter <clears throat> I think it's the latter and I, yeah I, I've never I've never pretended I don't think it, we're, we're foolproof and we've never pretended to have brought monumentally novel you know new parts of um method or, or practice we, we we are we are practitioners practitioners here we yeah it's it's there, there are some ideas about design some ways of doing design that are older than the web older than digital technologies they need to be kept taken care of and applied every time that we move through a technological or societal frontier you have to apply these good sensible human grounded principles towards yeah, design or business or whatever you're doing so yes it's 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 not it's not necessarily about creating novelty within our practice just just if you like deepening it and, and, you, and you're right finding a bigger stage for it that ability to make it stick i think is a design skill in itself uh, and you know as important a part of of any of this equation as the the, the novel methods and the, the novel approaches if you're able to get to user centered design using well trusted methods but you have the longevity and the the nous to negotiate your way through all the different organizational challenges to actually make it stick and actually have it come through and make a difference for the customer at the end yeah that is often the most valuable skill in itself uh, but look, Tom, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and chat on the show like this. Um, it strikes me that we probably could have uh, gone for double the length of this and still not run out of things to talk about. So perhaps we'll have to get together again and, and do it in the future and um, see how it's all working out for you in foolproof. Thanks, Mark. It, it, Mark it's been a real pleasure. I found Tom's story a really interesting arc. It's an arc in many ways that describes a much wider picture than emergence of digital platforms as the mainstream channels through which really big brands like Virgin began to engage with their customers in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, that realization later that users needed to be included in that design process and how you go about doing that, building a business around the premise, adapting and maturing that business to the changing landscape, right through all of that detail and nuance that he talked about of achieving scale for a user experience agency. And then, you know, a, a, a difficult decision, uh, perhaps, to position it for the future through a, a big M&A transaction. I'll put links in the show notes to all of the things that Tom and I talked about, plus also a few MEX articles from over the years which relate to some of those themes of building and scaling, buying and selling design agencies. And you can find all of that over at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Now, at the start, you might remember I did promise that I would mention a couple of things which have caught my eye around experience design recently. Uh, they're rather different things. Let's see what you think. Um, better still, drop me an email to let me know what you think and if they relate, how they relate to anything that you might be working on at the moment. 
So the first is a project called Interactive Light by Argo Design. Now, Argo is an agency that was founded a few years back by Mark Ralston. Um, Now, if you dial the clock way back to 2007, Mark was one of the speakers at our third MEX conference, I think, in London. And this project, Interactive Light, it's an experiment. Um, And immediately that gets in a certain amount of marks in my book, because this is something which Argo decides to do just because, you know, just to see an experiment rather than being tied to a specific client project, which I think is a, a healthy practice for agencies to get into. And what they wanted to do was explore the properties of light when it's being used to create interfaces which break outside the traditional frame of screen based devices. So, you know, what happens when an interface is projected onto a table or an object or it's just hanging in the air rather than being within a physical screen, a framed screen that you have to touch or control in some way with a a mouse or the kind of controllers which most people are still using in their day to day. And they've created a lovely succinct little video which shows some of these experiments. And crucially, they've pulled a few quite granular observations from it about how light and surfaces and users behave with these kind of interfaces. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can find the video, watch the video and see some of their write-up about it. And to me, I think this is quite an important part of our medium-term future. You know, we know that digital interfaces are going to break free from screens in the not-too-distant future. It's already happening in some ways, things like conversational interfaces, some of the in-car projection technologies that we're seeing. And when they do break free, I think the behavioural changes around the way users relate to this kind of stuff are going to be significant, probably as significant, maybe more so, than the changes that we saw when devices themselves became untethered from wires and fixed physical locations. We had all those shifts which came with the emergence of mobile user experience design. So the other one is a different kettle of fish altogether. Uh, This is something called the Misused Hardware Store, and I came across it on the Dezine blog. Again, I'll I'll put a link into the show notes so you can find uh, this article easily. And there was a team of designers that picked six common, cheap, mass-produced objects from hardware stores in Taiwan and six from hardware stores in the Netherlands. And they set about repurposing them into a series of products which turn these really very utilitarian components into things that are quite beautiful. Like there's a washing up rack that's made from those horrible little anti-bird spikes that you see in cities to stop birds from nesting in places that aren't convenient for humans. And there's this collection of little vases which use something as basic as the, the stainless steel plug fittings that you get in sinks. It's a really wonderful exercise in imagination and creativity, yes, that that ability to see something different in the everyday. Uh, And they've brought it all together for Dutch Design Week as a a pop-up store. That's the the misused hardware store. And to me, it, it explores a really powerful concept, this idea that how once something's being built at mass scale and the price drops low enough and the availability becomes ubiquitous enough, 
other industries and other groups can take advantage of that scale to do new things. And I think there's a lot of opportunity around that in, in mobile devices. You know, we've got these amazing microphones and camera sensors, which are being produced now for literally hundreds of millions of devices every year. Uh, and we might consider new ways of using those. There's already some quite interesting things going on around that, around how some of these are actually now becoming sophisticated enough to be used for things like medical and health purposes. And the fact that they've dropped to that price point and that scale of availability uh, is enabling those kind of technologies to help a much wider group of people in parts of the world which might not otherwise have had access to them. Anyway, links to all of that in those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And do drop me a line to let me know what you thought about either of those little bits of inspiration uh, or the conversation that I had with Tom Wood. Uh, If you want to send me an email, then the address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. So that's it for this edition. Uh, But just before you go, if you've enjoyed the episode and you want to help spread the word about this podcast, let me tell you about the best way that you can do that. It really is as, as simple as can be. Just send someone the link and a few words as to why you think they'd like to have a listen. So send it as an email to your friend, uh, post it on Twitter, post it on LinkedIn. It doesn't really matter where. The key thing is just give a little bit of personal context to help a like-minded pioneer understand why you enjoyed the podcast and why they might do too. I'll be back soon with another episode of Mech's Design Talk. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.